0: Well, how many of you by show of hands might say that you have a hard time paying attention to things? Have any of you at any point in your life found yourselves not paying attention? Maybe even already in this moment. (laughs) Last night, I was listening to our banjo player and as I was taking in the banjo, I was working with one of our tech guys who was getting my microphone on and he was asking me questions and I was not listening because in my mind, I wanted to be a banjo player. <laughs> and I had thought to myself, I wonder how long it would take me to become a really good banjo player, and how could I fit lessons into my life, and do I have enough years in my life left to get really, really good at the banjo, because that's what I really wanted. And the tech guy was talking about my microphone, and I, I, I don't know exactly what we were saying, but my attention was divided. Our undivided attention is a rare commodity. Simone Vale once wrote that attention is the rarest form of generosity. It is very hard to come by. Research suggests that five minutes into our time together this morning, more than half of you will have completely stopped listening to me. You will be trolling through the pathways. You will be wondering what you're doing later for brunch. For those of you who stick with me, you will leave here and likely remember less than 20% of what we share with one another this morning. And research also suggests that if I dare to use more than three points in this sermon, you will forget almost everything that I say this morning. Supposedly 20 minutes is the ideal time frame within which I should deliver this content so that you remember it. You're not getting off that easy. You will have a longer sermon than that. But you're lucky because there is a Florida pastor named Zach Zender who once preached for 53 hours and 18 minutes and clicked through 600 PowerPoint slides. So you're getting off easy. When we talk about undivided attention, we laud its merits, we're so grateful to receive it. When we offer it to others, we are told it can transform our relationships, our marriages, our communities, our friendships, our educations. When we lose it, we drift off at work. We drift off the road when we're driving. If we lose it for too long, we drift off course in our lives. And we could blame this struggle we have to focus on technology, perhaps its dizzying array of platforms. We could blame it on digital media or perhaps the companies that spend millions on ad campaigns to distract us in their direction. I read an article recently where it was suggested by one particular ad agency that advertisers and companies consider placing um, advertisements on the parking lot stripes where we park our cars because that is still uncharted territory. Tim Wu, an author and professor at Columbia Law School, explains this landscape as attention harvesting. We are divided. I don't think any of you would argue with me on that point in our time together. And again, while we can blame this tragedy on our distracted culture or any number of modern issues, the reality is human beings have always divided their attention. We've always had hearts and minds that are divided. Smartphones just made it a little more obvious. And so as we continue this week working our way through the Beatitudes of Jesus, we come today to one particular Beatitude that in many ways is about paying attention. And we're lucky because it's short, so we should have no problem with this, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now Bible commenters and scholars agree that what Jesus means here by pure heart, and when this phrase comes up throughout scripture, it means undivided. It means singular focus. You might say, blessed are those with an undivided heart. And the division of the heart has plagued people of faith for centuries. The prophet Elijah begged the same question when the people of God wavered at that time in their worship between the Lord Yahweh, the true God, and the idol God of their culture, Baal. And back and forth about their love for God or their love for what they thought might be a better God, a shinier, brighter object, one with a different luxury to it. When they went back and forth on this, the prophet called them out. Elijah, scripture says, went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, well then follow him. And interestingly, the people said nothing. How long will we divide our attention and our affection? Consider this scathing rebuke in the New Testament from the book of James, who goes hard after the divided affections of God's people. He asks this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you, the divisions within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And oh, by the way, when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you might spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, he says. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, he says, that the scriptures say without reason that he, God, jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? And he goes on to say, so come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Ouch. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. So call it attention, divided attention, divided affection, divided minds or hearts. But the struggle of human history that this beatitude captures is the incessant, ongoing, relentless struggle to keep God as the object of our attention, the focus of our affection. Blessed are those who can focus on me because they will see me. The Beatitudes are these powerful one-liners that Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with. Interestingly, like I said, short enough to harness our attention, they're shorter than the average tweet or social media post, so we should have no problem. Jesus delivered this conversation to a different culture than we inhabit today. And so it helps to lay the groundwork for our discussion by talking about some of the terms that he uses. It helps us understand why he chose the words he did and what they meant to the people who heard them at that time so that we understand them more fully. And we have been spending several weeks, of course, on this, but as a reminder, to be blessed, when Jesus says, blessed are, it simply means God favor. God's favor is upon. God's favor is upon you because God chooses to give it to us. It is not earned. God's favor means presence. It does not mean happiness, comfort, whatever we want. It means God's transcending presence is upon us and with us in situations where we find joy or in situations where we find grief. It means power and kingdom and purpose is with us. So God's presence and purpose is with those who are pure of heart. Now what does this word pure mean? It doesn't simply mean somebody who just plays by all the rules. It signifies that which is clean, free from contamination. A metal in scripture, it talks about a metal without an alloy. The word is used to talk about a harvest. Wheat, where all the chaff has been weeded out. It's used to describe an army that is pure from detractors where every soldier is deployed to the singular cause. This is the same root from which we get our English word catharsis. We might say that a particular experience was cathartic because it purged us of emotions and experiences that were weighing us down. Now it's interesting to note that this word implies work that purity wasn't given, it didn't always exist, that an object was impure, and work had to be done to gain the purity, that an army with detractors had to be purged of that, that a crop had to be purged. And so it's indicating to us that blessed, God's favor is upon those who do the work who do the work of weeding out in their lives the distractions that take their attention from God. A person who is so singularly focused, who's done the hard work to be pure in heart. Psalm 24 says this, "'Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? "'Who may stand in his holy place? "'Who may see him, basically? the one who has clean hands and what a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god well how do we do this i i know i don't have this singular focus this undivided attention how do we focus on god it comes from the heart and the core of who we are, this focus that we're looking at, when we hear the word heart, blessed are the pure in heart, we think also of the biological and physiological implications of this word, especially those of you who are perhaps in the medical field. You think of chambers and valves and blood pumping and cardiologists and that sort of thing. We think of the biology. But for the Greeks, the heart, was the center of who they were. It was the core essence of their being. It was their soul, it was where their desires and their dreams and their appetites and their emotions and their affections dwelled. Scripture tells us over and over again that our lives are defined by what our heart longs for and chases after. God tells Samuel, The Lord does not look at the things of people. God doesn't look at what we look at. We look at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart, the core of who we are. Romans 10.10 tells us that with our hearts, we believe and will be justified. What is at the core of your being? What does your heart chase after? When it's just you and no one else can see inside your thoughts and no one else knows what drives you, what's at the core? What's at the root? Some of you might be able to answer that question quickly. Some of you have never actually stopped to consider that before. mean, this passage very boldly is telling us God's favor, God's presence is on those who have an Undivided attention and affection for me at the very core and essence of their being. If this is you, Jesus says, you will see God. You will see God, the the God of the universe. How many of you would like to see God? I would like to have God over for dinner because I have some questions. (laughs) and I want to sit face to face with God. I want to see God. Moses and God have this interesting exchange back in Exodus chapter 33. And Moses is tasked with leading the people of God on a treacherous journey. And he's back and forth saying, you know, how are you gonna prove that you're with us? How are we gonna know? How are we gonna know how to follow you? What are you gonna do? What, what signs, what, what visible exchange of your presence can we have? And finally, Moses just puts it out there. He says, now show me your glory. He says this to God. And here's the deal. In the Old Testament, you couldn't see God and live. Anyone who gazed upon the holy would die. And Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. All of my goodness. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. So he goes on. God tells Moses, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So there's various shades of meaning in this word see. In the Old Testament, like I said, you cannot actually see God. And in the New Testament, we live on the other end of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so while we have the spirit of God with us, we cannot either physically see the divine. Joseph Benson, this old Methodist minister, late 1700s, early 1800s, said this. He said said about seeing God, he said, we see God, namely, in the glass of his works, whether of creation, providence, or grace, here and face-to-face hereafter. We see God in the glass of his works here. When my daughter was around five or six, we were lying in bed one night. We had finished reading books, and I was just waiting for her to kind of drift off. And I was hoping she would drift off quickly because I wanted to get downstairs and put my feet up and watched whatever it was gonna be on TV at the end of a long day. And she asked me a question right before she was supposed to be falling asleep. She said, what does God look like? And she went on, what is God's hair like? What color might God be? How might God dress? Is God tall or small, loud or little? And I laid there and I said, I don't know. And she said, well, if you don't know what God looks like, how do you know where God is? Good question. And I continued to lay there, and I looked up at the ceiling, and I noticed there were a bunch of giant ball marks on the ceiling. (laughs) And it occurred to me to wonder which child of mine had thrown a soccer ball at the ceiling or something like that. And she said, mommy, (laughs) answer the question. And I... I asked her, I said, well, baby girl, when was someone nice to you today? When did you feel love today? When had someone been a good friend to you? And I asked her what she thought about the power of the huge tree in our front yard when it sways in a storm and how it feels to hear lightning and thunder. And I asked her how it felt when her grandparents came to her soccer game or when she heard good music. And I said, honey, in those places, you see God. You see God. When you see beauty and art and justice and compassion, you see God. And on and on I went like a preacher. She cut me off after a little while. One of the ways we see God is through the beauty and the people and the world that he created around us. But there's another nuance to the word see, and this word also means not just seeing visually the presence of God in creation, but it means a way of seeing, a way of being, an attitude that reflects God's heart for the world and for others, a posture that views others from a place of love and mercy, not from a place of anger or resentment or bitterness. When we have purged ourselves from all that we desire, we can see, we can be in the world in a dramatically different way. In Matthew 25, later in this book of Matthew, Jesus is explaining to another crowd those who will be with him in the final days. And he talks about separating out the sheep and the goats. And he explains, he says, those of you who cared for me when I was sick, who visited me when I was in prison, basically those of you who chased after me when I was suffering injustice, you will be with me, basically, he says, in the final days. And all of the pompous, arrogant, religiously righteous folks around him ask this question, when did we see you like that, God? Because Jesus was not actually imprisoned until the very end. When did we see you sick? When did we see you struggling? We did not see you like that, so how are we supposed to get with you in the last days? And basically Jesus says this, exactly. You didn't see me. My goodness passed before you and you missed it. It was in the form of those who were impoverished and sick and struggling all around you. You could have seen me in them, but you chose not to. This is what it means to have a pure heart that can see God. To see God is to see others in a different way. It is to see beyond their crass actions and their divided hearts and to see beyond the way they annoy and irritate us. It is to adopt an attitude of compassion and grace, one that looks beyond. One that dares to ask the question, what else is this person about? What goodness is in them? Because here's the other thing scripture tells us, we are all made in the image of God. And so we can look at one another in our divided, sharp-tongued, anger-filled world, and convince ourselves that we are less alike than ever before, or we can see God in the enemy. And we can experience him in people who look and dress and act and think and vote in different ways than we do. This is what it looks like to purify our hearts and to have the opportunity to see God. God's favor is upon those who have at the very core of their being undivided thoughts and motives, a deep desire to get it right and understand God. If we do that, we will then see God. We will be in this world in a different way. So the question I think before us from this beatitude this morning is simply this. What do you see? What do you see? This past month, I've had so many issues with my contact lenses. (laughs) I can barely see my notes right now, I'm going to tell you that. (laughs) And I have had to wear my glasses, and I don't know what's going on. I've had to make a with my eye doctor I can't see like I want to see and when I wear my glasses and and it gets sweaty they slide off my face and when I wear my baseball hat my hat squishes my glasses on my nose and I don't like wearing my glasses but when I wear my contacts I can't see and there's this glorious moment every day when I give up the fight and I pop my contacts out and I put my glasses on and I'm like oh This is what the world looks like. It's wonderful. And when I have my contacts in, my face is squished and I look angry and I can only see what is immediately in front of me. I really wanna read my sermon notes this morning like this. I cannot see right. I scowl and I pinch my face and I narrow my focus. What do you see? I mean, loosen your face up a little bit. Think about your actual eyes for a second. What are you looking at when you see the world? What drives, what heart fuels your vision? There's this interesting exchange, again, later in the book of Matthew, where Jesus is approached once again by the religious leaders. And they have this discussion And they ask Jesus this odd question. He travels, as you remember, with these 12 disciples, and and they're coming and going in and out of towns, and they're dusty, and they're dirty, and they're sweaty, and they're visiting people, and Jesus is preaching. And they go, and they're fed, and they have these meals, and these are a bunch of Jewish men. And there were Jewish laws and customs and rituals that they were supposed to follow. And a lot of the rules they were supposed to follow had to do with cleanliness, And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they come at Jesus and they say to him, they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? And this is more than the question a parent or a grandparent might ask or a teacher. Why are you so filthy? Wash your hands before you go after the chicken nuggets sort of thing. This is beyond that. The ritual at the time held that they would purify themselves religiously and ceremonially several times a day for a myriad of reasons. But particularly before a meal, they would roll up their sleeves almost like a surgeon and put their hands up in the air like this. And they would spread their fingers like this and people would pour water over them and they would make this elaborate display of cleanliness. And they would hold their arms in the air like this and the more elaborate the routine, the more distinguished the ritual, the more awe this was supposed to inspire, the more they would be seen by others as upright and religious, and everyone else was supposed to take their cues from this. And Jesus didn't do this. Maybe they brushed their hands off or washed them a little bit, but he wasn't into this, and neither was his, were his followers. And when he's asked about this, He offers a scathing rebuke. He says, you hypocrites for even asking me about this. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips. These people, these ceremonial, religiously upright, he says, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. What's the point? What's the point of your rules? He's basically saying when your heart is not in the right place, when you can't see beyond yourself. Jesus is chasing after the heart. He's angry with them because their rituals and their routines and their way of going about their day has nothing to do with the core, the transformation of the core of their being. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law! He goes, You are like whitewashed tombs. And you may look beautiful on the outside, but inside are the bones of the dead and decay and everything unclean. You appear so righteous and perfect, but on the inside your heart is a tragedy. Thomas Watson once said that morality can drown a person as fast as vice. When we diminish life, to the rules and the rituals, we miss the point. When all we see are the sharp lines that divide us, when people of faith say you're in and you're out and this is the rule and if you break it, it's not gonna happen, we miss the point. God calls us to a transformational relationship, not a set of rituals. John Ortberg says this, The primary goal of the spiritual life is human transformation. It's not making sure people know where they're going after they die, or helping them have a richer interior life, or seeing that they have lots of information about the Bible, although, of course, we know these can be good things. Let's put first things first, he says. The first goal of the spiritual life, the reason we're all here is the reclaiming and the transformation of the human race. How many of you would amen to the fact that we need that now more than ever, especially given everything that just happened again in this country a couple days ago? This struggle transcends faith communities. The attitude of so many people in our culture is one of unyielding adherence to their rules, the rules of their tribe or their party or their tongue or their nation. And the rules have become their idol. The reason they started the cause they did or the party they did or the movement they did has been lost, all the goodness has been lost. And all we do is argue about who is adhering to the rules. And we do it on Facebook and Twitter. We can't even see each other when we do it. And Jesus is calling us to transform this divided posture. And he says, when you look at me, when your reason for being in this world, is to honor me and to be in a relationship with me and to do what I want you to do. You will see everybody and everything in a dramatically different way. You will see as God sees. First John 3 says, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been na- made known. We don't fully see all of our potential. And we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him when he comes again for we will see him as he is so all who hope in this all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure friends this is this is what i want to be i want my first thought in the morning to be how can i honor my savior and how can i love my lord and how can i pray for justice and mercy and peace in my world. I want to be this. When I troll the scriptures and I read these invitations to prayer and to transformation over and over again, I I want to be this, I'm desperate to be this. I also want a kitchen remodel. (laughs) And I want a really great summer vacation. And I want brilliant kids. I happen to want a new pair of skis right now, really bad. I want to win every argument, I do. I want to be right. I want the people I think are wrong to be made right. I want to be comfortable. I want life not to hurt ever for any reason. I want to be financially secure. I want you to think I'm the smartest person you've ever met. I want to achieve and succeed. And sometimes, actually, if I'm honest, almost all the time, these desires come before my desire for God. How do we shift that? I suspect I'm not alone in this. This is an invitation from Jesus to shift this and to set my desires aside and my myopic inability to see more than a foot in front of me and to put on the lens that Christ calls us to have and to read and to pray and to worship and to see the beauty of creation and the beauty of other people and to find myself consistently moved to a posture that sees God. This is the invitation. Blessed are those who can set aside their own desires and focus on me with their undivided attention, for they will see me and change the world. This is what I wanna be, and I pray it may be so for all of us. And so in this moment, I would like to end us with a time of silence, a minute of silence, in a culture that divides and distracts us. We don't get time like that very often. And so whether you this morning are joining us online or in Downers Grove or the sanctuary or the fellowship hall, wherever we are, we're gonna have a moment of silence together. And we're just gonna sit and I want you to ask God to simply focus your attention on him. Whatever it is that gets in the way, just ask God, remove the distractions and help me focus on you. So friends, let's take that silent moment together.